We taught a class here at Westwood. We've taught it more than once. Can't remember how many times we've taught it. Um, growing a child, God, growing a child God's way, and and in that there's this concept. I should have put it up so you could just see it. But just envision a circle and a child standing inside that circle, and it's called the circle of safety. It's called the circle of blessing in another book that I read. But the idea is that inside that circle of safety, which is inside uh, parental love, parental correction, the discipline, the instruction, all of those things that come with being inside this, this place of safety, inside this circle, that's a place of blessing. It's a place of safety. It's a place of instruction. Outside of that is danger. So just imagine that, that image, if you can, that circle of safety and that might help us a little bit to understand the symbolism that Hebrew scholars give to the letter, the Samic. It's the 15th letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And it looks kind of like a circle. And, and Hebrew scholars teach that that letter itself represents safety and protection, or it represents support and being upheld. And so they give great significance to this section of Psalm 119 because in it are these concepts that the Hebrews would say are foundational. They're supportive to a right kind of a faith, to understanding God the way we should and understanding ourselves the way we should, that the truths that are taught in this section of Psalm 119 are supportive of that. They're, they're that place where we're protected, where we're kind of put in that safe place. And the central idea there, that central foundational truth is what we sung about, what JT read in Psalm 120, uh, excuse me, in verse 120 of Psalm 119, where it says, my flesh trembles for fear of you. My flesh trembles for fear of you. And he doesn't just stop there. I am afraid of your judgments. So we're going to talk today about the fear of the Lord what it is and maybe what it is not. We're going to talk about the second concept that is in this section that's also supportive, foundational, and that's the concept of being single-minded. There's a lot of emotion, if you will, but it's not just empty, shallow emotion. He begins this section by saying, I hate the double-minded. And he ends by saying, I love your law. So there's a lot of emotion here. And the idea of, of, of being double-minded is ambiguous, can't really nail it down, kind of, you know, sitting on the fence one way or the other. We'll talk about that. So these two concepts, though, being single-minded and having a healthy understanding of what it is to fear the Lord. And there's, there's only one way that we can do that, and that's when we see him for who he is. That's been the focus of what we've been singing this morning, all right? We probably roll through holy, 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 many of us by memory, and don't really think about the holiness of God. We can say that our God is an awesome God, but the verses of that talk about seeing his awesomeness in his wrath, in his holiness. He wasn't just putting on a show when he poured out fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. That should spur us on to worship, spur us on to see him for who he is. So having this single-mindedness and this fear of God flows from having a heart for God 
And the only way we're going to have a heart for God is when we see him for who he really is. And the only place we can see him for who he really is is in his word. So that's where the psalmist is going with this. So let's look at this passage. I'm going to begin reading in verse 113 of Psalm 119. Follow along in your Bibles with me. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield, I hope, in your word. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. Uphold me according to your promise that I may live, and let me not be put to shame in my hope. Hold me up that I may be safe and and have regard for your statutes continually. You spurn all who go astray from your statutes, for their cunning is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I'm afraid of your judgments. Let me, let me pray. Lord, thank you for this word. I fear that, I know that I, Lord, um, have grown comfortable with you. Um, not regarded you as I should. Not trembled at the thought of you. And not taken your word as seriously as I should. I don't think I'm alone in that, God. So, Lord, teach us what it means to have a single heart single mind for you. Teach us what it means to fear you, to love you and to trust you. Show us how those things go together. Um, Thank you for your word today. Uh, So lead us through it, Lord, I pray by your Holy Spirit. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So this passage shows us how to be single-minded and how to rightly fear. That's kind of how I came at at the title of this. Um, so think back, I, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law, he says in verse 113. So let's think about a single-minded person and our affections for a second. Think about having the affections of God, having that single mind for God, and then not being ambivalent, not being, you know, just wishy-washy or whatever. So the single-minded man has affection for God, so I'm not ambivalent. The only place in the Old Testament where you're going to see this particular word used is right here. Okay, this, this idea of where I hate the double-minded. But that idea is not unusual in the Old Testament or the New, and it's illustrated in several places. Remember what Joshua said to the children of Israel as they were entering into the Promised Land? Choose you this day who you will serve, he said. Actually, in verse 14, he says, Therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're going to dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So you see there, double-mindedness really is not even an option for us. We're going to serve one or the other, but we cannot serve both. Isn't that what Jesus said? You cannot serve God and mammon. It's impossible. You're going to serve one or the other. 
It's illustrated also in 1 Kings 18. It's one of my favorite passages in the Old New Testament, in the, in the whole Bible, really, where Elijah draws the people of God up to the mountain of God with the prophets of Baal. And he says, how long will you wobble, is kind of what the word means there. Elijah came near to all the people. How long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. <laughs> and if, if Baal is then follow him. And, and then the text says, and the people did not answer a word. They couldn't. Because you're confronted with the reality that double-mindedness is a spiritual impossibility to be functioning. It doesn't work that way. And James says the same thing in the New Testament. It's not just an Old Testament concept. James 1.8, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And then at the end of the book, in, verse, in chapter 4, he says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. So when I say double-minded, I want us to also think about our heart. Because that's what David was praying for in Psalm 86.11. I memorized it years ago in the NIV, where he says, Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. So right there, that single-mindedness, that single heart, and the fear of God are together. And this is where the battle is, guys. The battle is, is in our hearts. It's in our minds. That's the battlefield of our desires, right? That's where we struggle. That's where the thoughts of our hearts can be worldly or carnal. They can be proud. They can be hateful. They can be impure. And when those things raise their ugly head, we're fighting against that. And that's the battleground. And that's the first place where we begin to see, I, I, gotta, I need some help here. And so we turn to the Word. And he sees the Word as his faithful. I'm, he's not ambivalent about this. I hate what is contrary, and I love your Word. And he said this over and over, nine times in Psalm 119. By the time we're finished with it, we will hear him say, I love your law. I love your statutes. I love your testimonies. I love your commandments above gold. I love your precepts. Nine times he's going to say, my heart loves your word. Because my heart loves you. See, that's the thing. We cannot separate our love for God and our love for his word. And our love for his word is going to begin to manifest itself in our single-mindedness. So how do, we, how do we just apply this verse? How do I hate the double-minded? Well, C.S. Lewis would tell us that the first place we start with this critical eye toward that which is ambivalent is in the mirror. In the mirror. In mere Christianity, this is what he said. Now that I come to think of it, I remember Christian teachers telling me long ago that I must hate a bad man's actions, but not hate the bad man. Or as they would say, hate the sin, but not the sinner. For a long time I used to think this was silly. Straw-splitting distinctions. How could you hate what a man did and not hate the man? But years later it occurred to me that there was one man to whom I had been doing this all my life. Namely, myself. However much I disliked my cowardice, my conceit, or my greed, I went on loving myself. There was never been the slightest difficulty about it. In fact, the very reason why I hated those things was because I loved the man. And just because I loved myself, I was sorry to find that I was the sort of man who did those things. 
Consequently, Christianity does not want us to reduce by one atom the hatred we feel for cruelty or treachery. We ought to hate them. But it does want us to hate them in the same way in which we hate things in ourselves. So I look in the mirror when I read. I hate the double-minded. And I look at my heart and my affections. So that's, that's the way I apply that verse right there. Oh, it's easy to look at you and see your hypocrisy. It's easy for you to look at me and see my double-mindedness. But I believe the Word would want us to ask God to examine our own hearts first. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. So to fear the Lord is to hate evil. And then the writer of Proverbs says, Pride, arrogance, the way of evil, and perverted speech, I hate. So God, help me to look at my pride, my arrogance, my evil ways. Look and listen to my speech. And then feel that hatred toward those things and love your law that way. Secondly, look at verse 114. You are my hiding place and my shield, he says. I hope in your word. Look down at verse 116. Uphold me according to your promise that I may live and let me not be put to shame in my hope. Verse 117. Hold me up that I may be safe. And have regard for your statutes continually. The single-minded man has the protection of God. And that protection gives me safety and hope. Notice what he says. Verse 114. God is a place of safety and protection. You are my hiding place. We've seen that repeatedly in the scriptures. The, the hen who gathers her chicks under her wings. That rock of safety that he is for us. He is our hiding place. Verse 116, He is our protector and our defender. This isn't just about sheep lying in the pasture in the care of their good, strong shepherd. This is about soldiers on the battlefield in the fight, protected. He is my shield, my protector, and my defender. And so my hope, he says, has a solid foundation. Hold me up, he says in verse 116. Hold me up according to your promise. Let that be my foundation. Let that be my hope. Verse 117. He's my support. He's that, that undergirding that's holding me up. So in the Word of God, this idea of being single-minded is that place of safety. When James says that the double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways, he is unstable in his emotions. He is unstable in his affections. He is unstable in his actions. There's no consistency there. And that's what we see here. He's, he's unstable in what he's hoping in. And, and it's not hard to really make a distinction there when you put it that way, right? I mean, there's some things that we love and there's some things that we don't. And not just not love them, but we hate them. And that's the, that's the clarity that we see in this passage of Scripture. And double-mindedness and single-mindedness, they don't love the same things. They don't feel the same way about certain things. They don't trust the same things, and they don't hope in the same things. And notice, notice what he's praying for here. All right, Here's, There's a request in these verses. Lord, I, hold me up according to your promise that I may live and not be put to shame in my hope. Hold me up that I may be safe. 
and have regard for your statutes continually. So, Lord, I'm praying here that I would not literally, in the Hebrew, reap shame. That I would get to the end and stand in shame because that hope that I've placed has been put in something that wasn't worthy of that hope. Lord, I want that hope to be a solid foundation. I don't want to get to the end and be disappointed. And then in verse 117, Lord, I don't want to reap shame. And I want you to, Lord, show me, hold me up so that I can keep my eyes fixed on your statutes. So I can regard your statutes continually. I want to persevere, Lord. Jesus said those who endure to the end will be saved. So I want to endure. I want to hold on. And the only way I can hold on is because of what? You're holding on to me. You're holding me. You're helping me. Spurgeon said, perseverance to the end, obedience continually, comes only through divine power. That's, that's it. And so he's praying, God, I, I love your word. You're my hiding place. You're my shield. So I want you to hold me up, Lord, so that I will not get to the end to be disappointed. I've been at the bedside of a lot of people over the years and watched them draw their last breath. It's a mysterious thing. And I've never heard anybody say, if they had trusted in Christ, I blew it. That was dumb. I'm so disappointed. Never have I heard a saint use that last breath to express disappointment. Held up to the end. I don't want to be ashamed when I get to the end. And I want to live so that I can regard your statutes continually. I want to live so I can obey. I want to live so I can honor you. I want to live so I can love you. So think about this as we think about these verses. What are you resting in and trusting in? This is not hypothetical, okay? This is just not hypothetical. There's been a constant emphasis throughout Psalm 119. Indeed, go back to March, guys. We went to the Psalms of Lament. The idea there is we live in a broken, hurting, suffering world, right? And we didn't need a pandemic to remind us of that, but it did. And so we go to the Word and we see that this is not hypothetical. And the emphasis on sufferings, afflictions, trials, and adversities throughout these psalms, throughout the Bible, are there for a reason. It's there so we will look at ourselves and our world and say, what ultimately are we trusting in? What are we resting in? And, and here's, here's something else. What are you praying for? What do we, we talk a lot about interceding for others. Can I encourage you to pray for yourself in light of Psalm 119? In light of this passage, Lord, hold me up so that I can be resting in your promise. Hold me up so I can live for you and obey you. And this hope and this perseverance go hand in hand. Think about it. If I have hope, I don't quit. I just don't. There's, there's enough spark in me to continue to go. You've heard it before, but it's true. When you, when you give up, we've seen it, right? When, I've seen people give up. It's quit. Quit eating, quit drinking, and then it's not long. And that's, I mean, that's the circle cycle of life. But spiritually speaking, to those that are, that are 
as far as we know, not close to death. Hope and perseverance, hope and continuing go hand in hand. The writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 10, don't throw away your confidence, don't throw away your hope, which has great reward. You have need of endurance, the writer of Hebrews says, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what has been promised. Well, what have we been promised? We've been promised by our faithful Savior to see us through the end. And he's able to sympathize with us. So I hold on to this hope because I know that Jesus is my source of salvation. He's my sympathizer, and I can come to him in my weakness. I can come to him when my hope is drained. I can come to him when my strength is gone, and he knows what that's like. And I can come to him, as the writer of Hebrews says. I can draw with confidence to his throne of grace and receive the mercy and find the grace that I need in the time of help, in my time of need. Look at the next verse, 115. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. The single-minded person has discretion from God. So he can make the right choices. He can make wise choices. And discretion here has to do with our relationships. Discretion has to do with basic things like who I hang out with and, and who I'm Who's in, who's in that circle of friendship? And here's the, here's the emphasis that's in this verse. The, he says that I may keep your commandments. The idea for keep there is the idea of keeping watch over something, being in a watchtower, protecting something. That's the idea there. And, and the idea is, is uncompromising obedience to the whole of God's word is what Alex Moyer says about this particular word. And so here's the, here's the deal. I have a responsibility to keep a guard over my own heart, as you do. We have a responsibility to guard our own hearts, okay, and to guard my affections. And I need to do that. I, need to, I can't fall asleep in that. I can't be distracted from that. And I need to be sure, because he says, depart from me, you evildoers, so that, okay, there's a cause and effect here. Depart from me so that I may keep the commandments of my God. So what, what the psalmist is saying here is that I have a responsibility to guard my heart. I have a battlefield. I'm in a war, and that war is over my own heart sometimes. And I need to be sure that those who are around me are my allies in that battle. They're fighting for the same thing. They want the same victory that I do. And so it's important that we understand that who we walk with, who we spend time with, who we decide to fight with, who we decide to walk with in this world is critical to our spiritual well-being and our fight against a divided mind, a divided heart. It's critical that we see that. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Now, he was quoting somebody. We're not sure who he's quoting, but that, that old proverb is in the Word. And if my responsibility is to keep guard, then I can't be distracted from that. I can't be hindered from that. I have to make good choices, practice some discretion, exercise some discernment. I was reading an article this week. I don't even know how I found it. It was from Hamilton County, Ohio. And in this particular county, last year, up through the month of June, excuse me, up through the month of July, there had been three children that had drowned in public swimming pools or private swimming pools. This year, 
at that same period of time, there had been nine children drowned in that county. All of them, because the municipal swimming pools were closed, had drowned in private pools. Now, the municipal pools had what? Lifeguards. Lifeguards. The private pools had moms and dads and babysitters and different people in charge. In one case in that drowning, um, the responsible person had just fallen asleep. They just fell asleep beside the pool. In another case, a girlfriend was putting suntan lotion on her boyfriend while the child drowned. In another case, the responsible adult was just on her screen and never knew that the child was drowning. Distraction can be deadly. Distraction can be deadly. And the psalmist here is saying, Depart from me, you evildoers, that I will not be distracted. I will not be hindered. That I will make wise choices in my relationships. That I'll be where I need to be with the people that I need to be. Now, this is not saying that we separate ourselves from the world. We know that, right? We cannot do that. But we cannot be in the world the way we should if we are not with those whom we should be with. And we're not seeking the same thing together. And the psalmist says, I want to keep the commandments of my God, and I want to be around the people that are going to help me do that. Next verse, look at verse 118. You spurn all who go astray from your statutes, for their cunning is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross, therefore I I love your testimonies. The single-minded man has God's perspective. And so he rests in God's judgment. Now, as I was reading back through and working through this outline, I, you know, I, I, I do the sermon notes usually on Thursday and I send them to Yvonne. I don't have the sermon finished by Thursday. I'm, you know, different guys prepare different ways, but I, I usually do my outline and do my main points and then I go back and I'll work my way through it after I've spent some time in the text that week. And so when I, I was back just kind of rereading this and reassessing this where I said that we rest in God's judgment, that might not be the best term to use here. I think maybe a better term to use would be we are reawakened by the reality of God's judgment. Now, we do rest in the fact that God is going to take care of what he needs to take care of, okay? One day, God is going to take care of those who spurn him, those who reject him. He's going to take care of those who are opposed to him and his people. And that's true, and we rest in that. But the point that I believe the psalmist may be making here is that he is meditating on God's judgment. And it's reawakening in his own heart this awareness of who God is, this awareness of his holiness. He's meditating on the just judgment of God against those who... Not just wander away, okay? In verse 118, those who go astray. And that idea of going astray could be, well, they just kind of wandered off the path, you know? They didn't mean to mess up, they just did. No, that's not what that verse is saying because it says their cunning is in vain. They're rebelling. They're conniving. They're conspiring as to how to get away from and go away from God and go their own way. It's not just kind of 
like a dumb sheep wandering away. And, and he's meditating on God's judgment, God's judgment and rejection of those who choose idolatry, on those who choose to go away from him. And he rejects them. He discards them. And, and so the psalmist here, I think, is saying, look at that and learn from it. Be awakened by it. Recognize it by it. I, I have a theory about child rearing that comes just from my house, but I've seen it also. Um, here's, here's, the, here's the just the synopsis of that theory. Second-born children are not better than first-born children. Okay? Now think about that for a second if you need to. Second-born children are not better than first-born children. They are better observers sometimes. And they learn from the mistakes of their older brother. See, I was ready to kill Brad on many occasions. And Susan was too. And little Brian just seemed to be an angel. Just a little cherub. Dang, how could he be so much better behaved than his older brother? Well, it's because he may not be the sharpest knife in the drawer, but he's smart enough to see what happened to Bradley when Bradley did the things he did, and Brian's going, I don't want none of that. I don't want any of that. So he said, oh, he's such a well-behaved child. Now he's got eyes, and he can think. And he's thinking, I see what happened to Brad, and I don't want any of that. He learned from the just judgment that his older brother received, I think it was just. And he learned from that and said, I'm not going to do that. Well, I, I think that's part of what the psalmist is saying here. Danny Aiken said this, The phrase judgment day should strike fear in the heart of every human person. The certainty of its coming is a signed, sealed, and settled reality. Evildoers and those who disregard God and his word will not always prosper and they will not escape divine judgment. So the single-minded man hears God say what will happen to these evildoers. And sometimes we rest in that and just go, I'm thankful he's going to take care of this. I don't have to. And then sometimes I'm reawakened. Whoa, I would not want that happening to me. I would not want that happening to me. Well, now here's the question. Why doesn't that line of reasoning always work? Why was it that Brian still got in trouble? Why is it that I continue to do some of these things that I see God's word clearly about what will happen to people who do those things? Why does that line of reasoning always work for us? Well, one is we have desire. And I want it so bad I'm going to do it and I don't care. One is desire. One is, another one is deception. Well, they got caught, but I won't. Or, I know that happened there, but I can handle it. We're deceived. And thirdly, as we saw a minute ago, we're distracted. We just regard, you know, get away from me, evildoers. We don't, we don't think through those relationships and the consequences of those relationships. Lig Duncan said this, remember, 
that our God has ordained a connection between sin and misery and obedience and blessing. It is not that we earn our salvation through our obedience, but that God has ordered this world so that misery follows sin and blessing is that which is enjoyed by those who obey his word. And we need to remind ourselves of that because our desires can overpower our sight of that truth. In fact, every time someone takes the step of sinning, they have deliberately closed their eyes to that connection. A single-minded man sees what God says about his judgment. And then finally, look at verse 120. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. The single-minded person fears God and is filled with a trembling reverence for God and love. Now, let's think about this for just a second in the time we've got left. It may seem strange to us, as Jonathan read these verses a few minutes ago. Love and fear, trust and fear. How, how did those go together? How, how did they go together? He read from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 10. What does the Lord require of you, he said? To fear the Lord your God, walk in his ways and love him. Proverbs 28:14 says, Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Fearing God is contrasted in the word with a repentant, soft heart. Isaiah 66, 2, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Humility and lowliness and, a, and a, just a fear of God and what he says is, is healthy. And it's not just an Old Testament thing. What did the writer of Hebrews say? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, who he says is what? A consuming fire. That's why all those warnings are in Hebrews. They're there to say, this is what can happen if you walk away. This is what can happen by going contrary here. In the Bible, the fear of the Lord and the love of the Lord, to love God and trust Him, go hand in hand. John Calvin said, True godliness, true piety, consists in a sincere feeling which loves God as Father, and reverences and fears him as Lord, and dreads offending him worse than death. True piety, Calvin said, is loving God as Father, and so fear him as Lord, so that even if there were no hell, we would tremble to offend him. But there is a hell. And Jesus talked about it more than anybody in the Bible. And even in the same breath, in fact, turn, turn to Matthew 10. I read this earlier, but I want us to see it again. Just understand what it is. It's, the same, it's almost the same sentence. He says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So Jesus is not, the fear of God that we're talking about here, church, is something beyond just simple reverence and, and respect. We say that a lot, and that's okay. 
The fear of the Lord is the reverence of the Lord. But this goes further. This goes further. Do not fear those who can just kill your body and do harm to you physically. Fear him who can destroy both body, both soul and body in hell. But then in the same breath, down in verse 31, he says, fear not. Fear him and fear not. Wait a minute. <laughs> How does that work? Later on in Matthew 25, he'll, he'll, he'll say to those on his left, depart from me. You cursed, enter enter into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. In John chapter 3, following John 3.16, which we all love and quote, down in verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So often we look at hell and we think about hell and, and I've said this before, and probably you have too. You know, the person who goes to hell chooses to go to hell. hell. Hell's a consequence of our decisions. And it is that, but it is much more than that. I mean, we say people send themselves to hell. Their choices are going to lead them there. And that is true, but that's not the whole truth. God's just punishment... His wrath, that's his action. That's his response. And I think what Jesus is wanting us to understand here, that the word wrath is important for understanding just the severity of sin, to understand the holiness of God, and to respond to that as we should. That that this is not just... uh, John Piper wrote a book many years ago on... uh, what Jesus demands from the world. And one of his chapters talks about the fear of God. And he makes this connection that I think is helpful for me to understand it, that if I choose to take up smoking, I know one of the consequences of that is going to be lung cancer. It'll kill me sooner or later. But if I commit a crime and the judge sentences me because of that action, those are two different things. And that distinction is important. And so this fear is not just a fear of natural consequence. This is, this is the fear that God is holy and he is just and he will respond accordingly to guilty sinners. And the writer of our psalm says he spurns, he rejects those who go astray, those who are cunning and conniving. He discards the wicked like dross. So this is more than just respect and reverence. I tremble with fear of you. Now, where does that trembling fit into the life of a believer? Where does it fit into our lives? How is it possible to fear God and trust God at the same time? What does Jesus mean when he says, Fear him who can destroy body and soul in hell. Fear not, little children. We can fear and have faith. We can tremble and rest in hope. Because the judge who rightly should condemn us and punish us, took that punishment himself. The judge who can destroy our soul chose by grace to give that soul life in Christ. We can rest in his holiness and rest in his justice and tremble at it at the same time. And we should. 
I've been just deeply convicted of that this week. That we just are too casual. I'm too casual. I'm going to quit saying we in this. That I don't regard God the way I should. Therefore, I don't regard my actions sometimes the way I should. And I don't regard sin for the ugly ugliness that it is. Just dismiss it or downplay it. And the reason that so many people see hell as unjust is because they don't see God as holy as he is and see sin as seriously as they do, as it is. And the psalmist doesn't want us in that dangerous place, and it is a dangerous place. That's what the warnings in Hebrews are all about. Be on guard against that. If you see yourself stepping off in those directions, or if I see you, or if you see me stepping off in those directions, for the sake of our souls, say something. I do not want our lives together to be that unguarded swimming pool in Ohio. Or because I'm distracted, or got my face in a screen, I'm letting you slide off to hell. And I don't want you to do that for me either. And so this is serious business. Let's just go back to the beginning. Our fear of God flows from our heart for God. And we have that heart for God and fear Him as we should when we see Him as we should. And this Word is the only place where we're going to see Him as He should. And so I want us to think about, just examine our fear. Do we, do we have an unhealthy fear of God that's just waiting for Him to sling that holy hammer and lower the boom on us? That's, that's not what He wants. Jesus came to take that wrath and to take away from us the fear of that condemnation. But he also wants us to hold in our hearts the reality of how holy he is, how awful sin is. And he loves us enough to warn us. And he loves us enough to give us this word so that we can trust in Christ's work on our behalf. So God, help us not be just nonchalant. I don't want to be just... I want to take you seriously. I want to take my sin seriously so that I can rest and trust in you and fear you. Tremble at your word. Let's pray. Father, that's a work of your spirit that we need in our lives, and I pray for that in my life and in every, every person that hears this today. Father, I pray if there's anyone that's hearing this here in our room or in the Family Life Center or just maybe later this week. Father, the, the fact that you've loved us enough to send Jesus, that whoever would believe on him would have life but, and not perish, not perish. Not suffer the consequence, Lord, and not hear the judgment poured out on us of this eternal damnation that your word talks about. So, Father, thank you that there's a rescue. Thank you that there's a Savior. Thank you that there's someone who took that wrath. And, Lord, I pray if there's anyone who's not trusted in Jesus, never turned from their sin and trusted in Christ, that they would do that. And, Father, for your church, for your people, 
Lord, forgive us for being casual, nonchalant. Lord, forgive us for not seeing you as we should, not seeing our sin as we should. Thank you that we can rest in you and tremble at your word at the same time. Help us do that this week, Lord. Help us rest in that. Help us be awake to that reality. And I pray that, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen.